Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business of Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. Well, this month marks the one-year anniversary of the legalization of recreational cannabis. And Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he joins the show today to break down the challenges the industry has endured and maybe what the future holds with the upcoming legalization of edible products. And then after that, BIV's weekly technology panel featuring Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Fakis and Electron Communications consultant Matthew Klippenstein, they're going to delve into Surrey's aspirations to become a quantum computing hub, as well as PayPal, PayPal, I should say, pulling out of plans for Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency. And then finally, we'll talk about maybe that latest salvo fired by Disney in an escalating war with Netflix. But before we get to all that, a few events to tell you about. October 9th at the Vancouver Club. That's tomorrow. We are going to have an expert panel on cannabis year one and all the challenges faced and what lays ahead. And then on November 13th at the Fairmont Waterfront Hotel, BIV will be showcasing its BC CEO awards. I don't think you'll want to miss that. It'll be great. More details on those events at BIV.com slash events. Now let's go ahead and talk to Dan Sutton from Tantalus Labs. So in just over a week, we'll be marking the one-year anniversary of the legalization of recreational cannabis. Now, Canada, we, we've kind of deployed a bit of a patchwork system here across the different provinces, and we have a lot of questions about maybe what the uh, legalization of edibles will entail later on this month. And joining us today to dive into all these issues, it is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. So at this point, okay, we're a year in. What province do you think is maybe the closest to getting it all right, making it uh, kind of finding that right balance between industry, consumer needs, and whatever other concerns might be out there? Well, I think that Across Canada, because we have a federal framework for production regulations and quality assurance, uh, we've kind of got a, a unified strategy when it comes to consumer safety uh, and especially with you know, clear labeling of products, definitive lack of pesticides or adulterants. These things are true for all provinces. Perhaps my pro-industry bias is showing, but I would say that Alberta is a pretty good case study in allowing the market to dictate scope. Alberta's continued to open new stores. They've continued to release new licenses. Uh, I believe their current count is well into the 200s, uh, which perhaps is competitive with the rest of Canada combined. And we've actually seen a, a substantial influx of entrepreneurial talent, a lot of people creating thriving businesses. They're paying a substantial amount of tax. Their communities are thriving. They're creating jobs. Uh, you know, From an economic perspective, Alberta is a really awesome case study in, in balancing, I think, Canada's completely appropriate public health and safety stance with also allowing the marketplace to flourish in an organic way. Uh, whereas British Columbia, Ontario, uh, other provinces have been slower to, to meet the demands of their emerging markets and as a result are conceding market share ultimately to uh, the, uh, the illicit market that currently exists. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your thoughts with regards to BC because if you look at the revenue coming in, like we're on par with what, like Prince Edward Island at this point? You know, is it because of the persistence of the illicit market or are there other factors that we should be aware of? Well, that's certainly what uh, Mike Farnworth and the NDP administration have blamed uh, the lack of progress in BC on. The, the problem with that thesis is that every time a new store opens, whether it's in a rural community, whether it's in a metropolitan center, it seems to do well. Swift businesses being had, you know, at uh, 
City Cannabis Co. on Canby, right near this office here, all across Vancouver, Victoria, the stores are doing really well. So it seems as though there is a consumer preference or a subset of consumers that prefer to purchase through legal retail shops. And ultimately, I think the only way that we are going to test this marketplace is allow all of those retail, aspiring retail owners that pass the security checks, that pass the thorough vetting process to get into this marketplace and some of them may not succeed. This isn't a guaranteed lottery ticket here. This is, you know, you've got to build a good business and create a community around your retailer. But ultimately, I believe that we have far more legs than than uh, the BC government has, 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 you know, allowed us to have. And, and ultimately, we will see probably an equilibrium of maybe 500 to 700 stores in British Columbia, you know, hopefully within the next couple of years. Okay, so if we shift over to the producer side, which is that is your bread and butter here. Uh, how has the last year been going? as a producer though overall are, are there some obvious things you're like oh uh, we just hit out of the ballpark are there other things where you're like you know what uh, industry we, we are having some struggles right now with just with some parameters that have been set out by government well i think the number one complaint you're going to hear from especially large lps is that the market in canada is not large enough to sustain the size of the players that they have ultimately built there was a huge sprint get big fast, millions of square feet of production capacity, you know, huge competition, especially between the large firms as to who can have the largest production square footages. And I think we're, what we're realizing now is that today in the current state of the market with perhaps 350 operational stores, maybe 400 licensed stores across the entire nation of Canada, one that could probably sustain thousands and thousands of stores, there's just simply not the marketplace for that amount of scale. Now, for producers such as Tantalus Labs or, or Seven Acres or Broken Coast, which is another uh, British Columbian favorite across Canada, those that have focused on quality production in a, in a prudent way and have scaled their production uh, based on market demand, not based on the aspirations for eventual, you know, for deep market penetration, they've, they've done well. There are, you know, the beginning of the emergence of cash flowing businesses, profitable business. Tamalus Labs just posted its first profitable quarter last wow. quarter. And it looks Congrats. like we'll be, we'll be in the black going forward if we're, if we're smart about that, which gives us a great defensibility, a great amount of, of business stability. Um, those businesses are doing are doing well. There there are at the core of all of the stock market hype and all of the crazy you know excitement there's been for the cannabis industry. There are sound fundamental businesses to be built. Uh, one of my favorite surprises is pre rolls, pre rolled cannabis uh, in the United States, and and based on sort of market survey that we did with kind of core cannabis users, and, and at the very beginning of legalization, it sort of looked like a lower tier product or or that it was perceived to be lower quality. That is not the case. Town Slabs has had an amazing uh, journey and adventure through the exploration of this pre-roll market, and we cannot roll these things fast enough. We actually just rolled our millionth pre-roll. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so we're, we're Just we're in time for that, October 17th. Which I think demonstrates that the quality-oriented consumer, <clears throat> the consumer that wants you know a beautiful flavor profile and, and a compelling um, psychoactive experience, they may also be a convenience-oriented user. They don't necessarily want to grind up the butt and do it themselves. I think some people who who love cannabis, they might be a little bit shy about the fact that they're not the best at rolling cannabis. Uh, so this just goes to show that you have to adapt to the marketplace. Adaptivity is more important than strength in this business. And the more we learn about our consumer base and their preferences, the more we can react and, and hopefully continue to, to fulfill those needs in an iterating way as, as we explore legalization 2.0. 
So what do you make of the possibilities in the future if we have other jurisdictions across the world that are getting closer and closer to legalization? You say that maybe we have the production capacity that exceeds our market then. Do you think that there are going to be easy opportunities for us to get into other markets uh, with exports or even just like knowledge base? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, Tantalus Labs has always built our systems for modularity, for scalability, <clears throat> and ultimately recognizing that we're kind of charting new territory when it comes to, to intellectual property in cannabis. We really hope that as we see legalization in other markets, people will say, oh, look, here's a, a firm or a set of firms in Canada that have developed systems that will save us substantial time on R&D, and we can leverage those in joint ventures or licensing agreements or, or what have you. And uh, certainly, if if I was a, a, a new entrant into an emerging cannabis market, I would far rather use existing proven expertise where you're delivering product, you know, you're creating a, a profitable outcome for your company. It seems like a, a massive de-risking strategy. But I'm really excited for the potential to eventually, and this may be in a 10-year eventuality, <clears throat> export British Columbian cannabis, cannabis that's grown here. And, and move that into other jurisdictions where fine quality is, is demanded in those marketplaces. I think you'll see a very quick shift when cannabis is legalized, say, in the UK, from it being, <clears throat> okay, let's just get any weed we can to a segmented user base that some prefer, some are more quality sensitive, some are more price sensitive. And we have a deep and story culture here that Tannel Slabs aspires to carry the torch for, you know, on a daily basis. If we can deliver those pro pro those quality outcomes in British Columbia, you know, we sort of look at it like the New York of cannabis. If you can make it here and satisfy this highly sophisticated user base, we should be blowing minds in the United States. We should be blowing minds in Europe. We should be blowing minds maybe in Asia one day. Uh, but all of that is, is pretty far afield. So we're pretty happy focusing on the, the Canadian cannabis community right now and, uh, and proving those systems and iterating those systems. So when it comes time, we can really capitalize on Canada's likely, you know, five to seven year IP advantage over the rest of the world. So I guess the next big thing that everybody has their eyes on right now is going to be edibles. Uh, October 17th, again, we'll have that legalized here. But are people actually going to be able to walk into stores and just pick something up on the legalization date, Dan? Uh, so absolutely not. First and foremost, there is a 60-day registration period where uh, new products need to be uh, confirmed with the minister, with, uh, with Health Canada. So I think the earliest we will see new products from legalization 2.0 on shelves is December of this year with probably a substantial launch of new products in kind of January, February. Um, and also important to note that legalization 2.0 covers edibles, concentrates such as hash, which is a really exciting category uh, and, and a variety of these other uh, dab instruments. It's kind of a, maybe for a younger audience or for people that are looking for more concentrated cannabis experiences. Uh, vaporization, which has been a contentious category of late, but is still a huge and highly demanded product segment in, in uh, analogous jurisdictions in the United States. And then also cannabis beverages, which is a subject close to our heart. And I think there's a lot of really cool British Columbian companies that are looking to deliver cannabinoid experiences in a form factor that's more analogous to what people might be used to in, in drinking. So we'll have a whole wide spectrum of new products. We'll have firms that are focused on more kind of therapeutic wellness uh, oriented categories, CBD oriented categories, and then uh, certainly convenience oriented categories. But where we're really excited is, is the 
quality differentiated aspects of, of all of those categories. And although Tantalus Labs won't be everywhere all at once, you will see us uh, emerge into those categories, hopefully over the course of 2020 and 2021. So if we reflect on the last year, I don't know, how do you think we have done as a country with regards to rolling this out? When it comes to prioritizing the public health and safety approach, ensuring that 99.99% of packages are arriving in consumers' hands in a, in a safe and palatable way, uh, <clears throat> and really ensuring that our federal regulatory system on production is the global standard. It is the leading edge, the most elite, the most difficult to cross the threshold of in terms of licensing. Uh, that I, I would give ta- Canada an absolutely an A grade. Uh, we've, done, we've done really, really well. From the business development, the industry support side, the the growth of the economic opportunity that not only includes you know tax revenue that I think is essential uh, to British Columbians and, and to Canadians for this new industry, but also for job creation and economic spillover effects, the money we pay to contractors or to lawyers or to accountants, local restaurants, all of these things that benefit uh, the communities that facilitate cannabis cultivation and retail. I think we're probably at about a C plus. Um, it's not the worst it possibly could have gone, but it just Canada, you know, was explicit in in the early days that this was a public health and safety approach designed to reduce the negative aspects of of the illegal nature of cannabis. But I think we could do a lot better to actually foster and facilitate the businesses that are emerging in this sector. I talk to entrepreneurs all the time who say, why did I ever get into cannabis? This is such a headache. It's such a nightmare. Nobody cares about us. Nobody wants to finance us. Nobody wants to to facilitate us in government. And I think we just need to really get over the social taboo. You know, two years ago, millions of British Columbians were consuming cannabis every week. That has not changed. We've simply come up with a better system to be able to deliver those products in a way that's consistent. And uh, I think municipal governments, provincial governments, federal government, there are many people that are still sort of uh, intimidated by the prospects of of a thriving and growing cannabis industry. And really, that's what we're going to look back on and celebrate in 10 years time. So the faster we can get on track with facilitating this business, I think uh, it's going to be better for all Canadians. I'll leave you with this question, though, because you're talking about the taboo factor. And I think it's been a year. I don't know. um, Our office, I haven't seen it fall to pieces because, you know, it's suddenly legalized. Do you think people are going to understand that, you know, uh, their lives and, and maybe public health has not been, you know, gravely affected by this legalization? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think the jury is still out on how many new users we've seen because of legalization. It, it may be a slight increase, but the reality is that there were millions of Canadians using cannabis when it was illegal and they weren't causing tangible social harm, really. There, there wasn't you know, a huge amount of emergency room visits or traffic accidents or crime or theft or violent crime that was associated with cannabis use then. It doesn't appear that there is any that have, it's, you know, there's no statistics that have spiked in those categories since legalization. Um, and I think a, a really positive statistic that I think you'll see the federal government lean on <clears throat> maybe in this election cycle or, or just as a talking point as they go is youth usage is, is down. Self-reported youth, youth usage is down. It's not a perfect statistic, but ultimately by age restricting the environments in which cannabis can be sold, we are seeing more limited access to youth. Youth can buy cannabis from from drug dealers. Drug dealers don't really care about the age of the people they're selling to. So the harder it is for those dealers to compete with the convenience and access from uh, from a legal retailer, I think the better it is. So yeah, we haven't seen any horribly negative 
social statistics. And uh, I think we'll come around. Maybe it will take a bit more time to really collect the best data we possibly can. Um, but legalization is is going to be an aggregate social net benefit. I don't think it'll be without costs, um, but we're already seeing the early signs that it is uh, substantially beneficial to, I think, the, the social portfolio of the Canadian government. Well, excellent. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. That is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Stay with us. The BIV Technology Panel joins us right after this break. And joining us today for the weekly Business in Vancouver Technology Panel, it is Linda Fakas. She is the CEO of Glue Technology Society. And we also have with us Matthew Klippenstein. He's an engineer and a consultant at Electron Communications. Matthew and Linda, thank you both for joining us on the show. Great to be back. Thanks again. Okay, so let's start with the news that the government is looking to help launch a new quantum computing hub at SFU's Surrey campus. Um, Linda, what are your thoughts on maybe kind of these ongoing efforts and initiatives that we're seeing to maybe turn Surrey into a bit of a second downtown of sorts that not necessarily competing with Vancouver, but complementing it? I think it's a has a great shot at it. We used to have an office at the Lark Development over at City Square, right across the street from the Surrey Memorial Hospital. And that environment, there's seven towers going up to exist. A third one's being built as we speak. So that'll be a really fascinating and affordable place for companies to come together. Um, they've got scientists in there, researchers, entrepreneurs, etc. So what we know from uh, Silicon Valley, if you want to use that as an example, is proximity matters, right? It's really great when all of these like-minded companies are in a uh, a close, confined area so they can network at lunch and uh, trade secrets, perhaps, and trade jobs, et cetera. But Surrey's got a good shot at it. They also have affordable infrastructure for employees. Hey, they've got all lots and lots of places to live that are more affordable than downtown Vancouver. So I don't see it you know, Apple's not going to move their head office there, I don't think, but um, it could be a really interesting secondary hub for our, our tech, maybe perhaps uh, veering more towards the health tech. That's what the LARC development seems to be moving towards. But this $17 million to get this institute up to create quantum um, computing expertise in our graduate programs across all of our universities, by the way, even though it's with SFU, UBC will be participating as will other universities. That's how we're going to get these people there. We're going to get researchers there and we're going to entice hopefully professors from around the world to come there. That'll draw in the businesses, that'll bring in the people. And I do think therefore that's got a good shot at helping Surrey build this second hub to Vancouver. Yeah, Matthew, what do you think of the human factor that Linda's bringing up here? Just the importance of getting talent and having to make sure that industry as well as institutes are working with these aspiring, you know, students to get them trained for the workforce. Oh, I think I think the the human capital, if you will, is is absolutely key. As Linda noted, uh, Surrey is more affordable than Vancouver, and I think when it comes to thinking about university spinoffs. Like UBC is still isolated and it won't have a SkyTrain for decades, at least well, at least a decade. Whereas SFU Surrey campus is on the main trunk line, the, the, the old expo line, well, the old and still existing expo right. line, which I regularly use. And so I would think actually Surrey's uh, SFU campus actually has an advantage geographically because you have rapid, you have, you have a rapid transit there. You can get to downtown 
possibly as easily or quicker from Surrey to downtown Vancouver by transit then from UBC, if you're, you know, you're co-located at, say, NRC out at the UBC labs there. And so I think it is, it is an advantage. And building out deliberately, consciously trying to build out this density and expertise in, in Surrey will work fantastically. We do have an, a lead in quantum computing. D-Wave is here. They had a very foresightful strategy of trying to scoop up and consolidate all the quantum uh, computing IP uh, for a number of years. And so um, this is the kind of thing you can grow, even if it takes a number of years for that to take off. Bringing those people together, uh, impatient folks might might form spin-offs that will also add to our head office count as a uh, you know through and through Vancouverite. I I do look forward to the day for Vancouver to uh, supersede Calgary as the number two you know a large head office uh, center in Canada. And um, uh, developments and industrial policy like this are how we can make that happen. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by the possibility here. It just seems as if we're kind of in a unique position here on the West Coast with regards to the future of quantum computing. And uh, the other thing, I don't know, uh, if we're looking at uh, the heating up of these ongoing streaming video wars, we got another salvo fired this last week with Disney banning advertisements of Netflix on any of its channels, uh, such as, say, ABC. I don't know. Are we seeing a further carving out of these services? It, it, it's not going to be like a friendly battle to see who has dominance in the video streaming phase. What do you think right now, Matthew? Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Netflix had a little monopoly for a while, and now um, HBO has moved into the, uh, the streaming space as well from its own pay service. Disney is coming out with its own. I'm sure that Warner Brothers is preparing its own offering. Um, and uh, I mean, for for that matter, WWE, the the wrestling uh, company, has its own uh, network. And uh, doing a little bit of research, uh, I, I don't subscribe to it. I'll have you know, but it was about thirteen dollars a month. So um, if they can get uh, viewership and you know committed fans to it, I am sure that um, uh, our kids will guarantee that uh, we and many kids and other families will guarantee Disney Plus many subscribers. Because if we don't, they won't let it go. And, yeah. and I just don't think that Disney telling Netflix they can't advertise on ABC is a big deal at all. Disney or Netflix is one of the um, preeminent companies in media that is using data science to figure out where they need to place their $2 billion in marketing money, right? Mm -hmm. So this is advertising dollars that they are being really really smart with spending and they do all of that in-house they don't farm that out to an outside ad agency and so what they're doing is they are targeting they're going where their audience is right they're using mm -hmm. snapchat and facebook and twitter digital campaigns are huge viral organically um, growing campaigns out of events they do and promotions they do are important to them so i don't see this abc disney saying you can't be on abc as any big deal at all and mm -hmm. by the way CBS doesn't advertise on ABC. It's not a big deal. This is just crossing these boundaries never happens. It's old mm -hmm. news and it's really no news. But what we do see is Netflix is slightly larger than Disney at this point. They have more users and they have um, a higher valuation. So it'll be really fascinating to see how the studio models now start competing because Netflix has left Silicon Valley. They're not really identifying as a tech company anymore. They're identifying as a content creation studio. Mm -hmm. And we all know Disney has a lot more experience at content creation than Netflix. So it might just be that this data science piece is what pulls Netflix ahead of Disney in this war. And I mm -hmm. think that's where it's going to get interesting. So I'll, I'll offer the counterpoint that if the Beatles Abbey Road can top the UK charts, 
50 years after being released, that shows you the importance of back catalog. Right. So I'm, I'm sure that Netflix will have a very healthy future. They have foreseen this, clearly. They've had a great content strategy. They've brought um, um, TV and movies together that otherwise would not have been made. Very innovative on their part. I guess I just don't see it being an either or. They will both have a very uh, healthy future uh, together. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone's going to stream one service. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think we probably will end up with three, four, or five. I think the people who get in trouble here are the ABCs, right? We're going to mm -hmm. all of a sudden, thank goodness, get rid of those horrible channels that waste a lot of our money every month and customize our own viewing content by streaming a whole bunch of different services. And mm -hmm. Disney is going to be an obvious lineup for families with younger kids, perhaps. Um, we'll see what kind of content they decide to create uniquely. But is Netflix going to go away? Is Netflix going to become the second the secondary streaming service? I don't think so. I think they're going to hold that that title for quite some time. Well, as we know, we are going to get just a barrage of these new services. I'll ask you guys personally, how many do you think you would max out at? Like how many services would be the most you would ever subscribe to if they're going for prices at this point ranging uh, maybe around 10 to $15 at this point? Uh, I'll start with you, Matthew. So um, I could foresee um, that uh, we would have Netflix, we would have uh, Disney, obviously the back catalog, uh, that's mainly aimed towards the kids. Um, I'm not. Uh, I actually purchase occasionally, uh, you know, uh, shows off of off of iTunes. I even I even bought music this morning, as opposed to streaming it. Uh, I could imagine having another uh, premium service or two. Maybe one day, uh, maybe one day HBO or someone else. But um, maybe three or four. I guess the fourth would probably be a sports themed, like a live event themed. Um, uh, operation because it does seem to me that that is where the the likeliest place to go for your next you know you buy the playoff package for NHL MLB but baseball has its own. You've done the market research on WWE, so that could be yeah. The, well, uh, there you go. I yeah. mean, when you have fans, you have a definite uh, spot for people uh, who are willing to pay money for the live uh, events. Yeah, yeah what, and I'm, what about you? I'm looking at the uh, economics of what we're spending right now to get Telus Optic into our house. That mm -hmm. dollar value is going to go. 100% over to streaming, mm -hmm. uh, various services, as soon as my husband can give up sports. Right? right, That's the only thing holding us over there. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, I will happily be streaming 10 products, perhaps 12. Right now we have six in our house. And the minute sports hits, I imagine that's going to splinter into two or three different services. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that will still probably be cheaper than what we're paying now for horrible TV we never watch. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, guys, a uh, final topic here. Um, PayPal, it's pulling out uh, Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency plans. We know that Visa and MasterCard were appearing to get cold feet as well. Is it worth it for these companies if they're facing all this regulatory scrutiny right now, Linda? This is what it seems to be coming down to. Yeah, I don't know how worth it is it is for them. And, and you know, Facebook doesn't need Libra to become the WeChat of the world, the operating system of our life. Seems like a lot of work to get crypto into their wallet world. Um, and I can see, you know, PayPal saying they're they're not in. Facebook and Visa saying we haven't committed, where everybody's just kind of in the exploratory phase. Next week they have their meeting in Geneva. Perhaps that'll solidify some people on or off the fence. But it... it is it going to happen? Is it necessary? I think it's going to happen, um, but not in the time frame they say. And obviously with a slightly different partner group than they're imagining they're going to have mm. right now. Yeah, Matthew, do you think that Facebook just has this unique ability because of 
the size of its platform that if anybody was going to make it go mainstream, at least here in you know uh, North America and Europe, it has to be Facebook. Um, Facebook does have a, you know, it owns the, so- the social media space largely here in, the, in North America, in the West, I guess you could say. But um, it's like, so this is being discussed now. It does seem a little bit like um, Microsoft teaming with Nokia for the smartphone sector in that Microsoft wasn't a leader on the software side for smartphones. Nokia was no longer the leader on the, on the hardware side. Um, so PayPal had been displaced, and I just uh, took some notes here, in about 2011, or, sorry, 2013 by Alipay, Alibaba's uh, payment app, uh, as the world's leading mobile transaction provider. And uh, WeChat's, uh, WeChat Pay had been identified recently by uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's uh, Charlie Munger, his, his right-hand man, as a possible threat to Visa and MasterCard. And so it, it would seem that Facebook is late to the game, um, Visa and MasterCard might be feeling pressure, and then uh, PayPal as well is they're like, okay, we have to catch up. If we jam in cryptocurrency, maybe there's some value to it. Uh, I'm sure we will have a cryptocurrency enabled or augmented uh, you know, payment transaction system. I'm just not sure if it's going to come from come from behind whenever someone really really nails the uh, the, the formula. And I think the problems Libra, excuse me, is having is that it is Facebook. It's it's aligned with Facebook. David mm-hmm. Marcus is a Facebook employee, um, so that's the problem. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. trust Facebook. The regulators are very wisely saying, "Hold up, have mm-hmm. we not had this conversation with you about privacy, <laughs> respecting people's digital privacy, getting your security house in order?" None of which Facebook has done, and now they're going to try to get into this uh, market that people are worried are going to disrupt traditional global uh, economics. The 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 currencies of nation states. Um, so the problem Libra's got, the first problem they have is Facebook. And Wired has a great um, web of connection in their um, online magazine yesterday showing all of the Libra Association connections, all the members that are proposed now, um, how they're all interconnected. So Libra's mm-hmm. not looking like this um, nonprofit of non-aligned people coming together to make this crypto thing mm-hmm. happen. This is an insider's club of people who see a really great business opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if Facebook could be removed from the equation, would a Libra happen faster, perhaps? But mm-hmm. I think that the fact that they're aligned is a very much a Sisyphean battle for Mr. Marcus and the EU. I, I would actually agree with that. I think uh, Facebook... Facebook's brand is not really in a strong place right now. So um, having a, a maybe a smaller player, one someone who isn't this dominant 800-pound gorilla uh, advancing this uh, could, be a, could be a very, uh, un- could unlock, could catalyze Libra action moving forward faster because there are trust issues. Well, there are trust issues with, uh, with Facebook's handling of data and, you know, ability to, um, uh, to, uh, you meet the various standards that we have in the West for how we want certain companies to behave. Or else maybe we just swap out Facebook and stick in Disney. Uh, they'll have kind of the uh, the dominance moving yeah. forward. We'll have to watch. <laughs> but uh, Linda, Matthew, thank you both for joining us on the show. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you very much. That's Linda Fakas. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society and Matthew Klippenstein, an engineer and consultant at Electron Communications. And that is it for the show today. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. So please tell a friend. I'm Tyler Orton. We'll be back on Wednesday.